This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons. I'm Madeleine Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, within these hallowed halls, dark academia in speculative fiction. Oh, the aesthetic of dark academia. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. This is um, this is kind of my fault, this episode. And <laughs> in, in typical Jules fashion, I realised that I liked a very specific group of things without realising that many other people had already created a fandom for it. <laughs> Not only a fandom, but Pinterest boards. Yes. <laughs> photo montages and things, and they'd given it a name. Um so there you go. That's me being the old fogey who's slightly behind the times on the terminology. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so what we're looking at is obviously dark academia. And there's there's two big things to look at here. Mm. Um, one is the aesthetic and the other is the literary trope. Now, the aesthetic technically grew out of the literary trope, but it continues to inform the literary trope, which then informs the aesthetic which I find quite an interesting situation. It's a sort of symbiotic relationship at this point, isn't it? Yeah. Um, Yeah. So, (laughs) origins-wise, there's a bit of debate on this. And Mm. uh, because the term itself is relatively recent, I think the term became more commonly used around sort of 2019, 2020. Mm -hmm. um, And it became very, very popular during COVID-19 just because... I think people wanted that sort of escapism. Yeah. That idea of a life that I didn't live. Um, and I think also what you have to take into account there is is also kind of like the grown-up Hogwarts, Hogwarts generation. Yeah. Where obviously your letter never came because it's a fantasy. Um, <laughs> and now I, love, I love the way you hesitated there because it's, it's a, a fantasy. fantasy. Like, it's just, I'm so, oh, I'm I hate to hopeful. break this to you guys. <laughs> It's like, I'm really sorry, brace yourselves, I want you to be sitting down. Um, yeah, oh, it's fictional. Um, but having grown up with that being kind of like a beloved chunk of your, your childhood or whatever. Mm. Not my childhood, because I was an adult by then. Um, you get that and the fact that you're that this, that generation's now grow, grown up and they're looking for alternative takes on it to a certain extent or something with a flavour of it, but different. And I think that's where it sort of really gained popularity. I agree. And I, I do think that the the very unique uh, culture that kind of grew around sort of COVID and isolation and stuff like that um, definitely nudged that along because there's something about kind of dark um, sort of academia and stuff like that. There's a whole idea of also of isolation, of feeling alone, of sort of weird hours <laughs> yeah absolutely. the kind of the romance of it all you know like if you're stuck alone in your house you've kind of got your books you're just there like ah oh, but to be in a huge library in the dark with a candle discovering the mysticism of the universe <laughs> yeah absolutely it's that feel it's mm. kind of it's not quite as big as like the goth movement but it's got the feel of the goth movement about it yeah absolutely without perhaps the bdsm angle of the goth movement 
It's perfectly possible to be a goth and never get involved with any of that, by the way. <laughs> but, you know, that's kind of that's kind of the thing. Um, yeah. So origins. Um, some of the themes are quite universal in lots of lots of different things, and I've heard arguments about where it originated. Mm. Um, I think the thing that really gave it the big push uh, was the 1993 book *The Secret History* by Donna Tartt, which we will talk about later. Mm-hmm. And then you have films like uh, the. I think it's in the 1983, the Dead Poets Society with Robin Williams. Yes. Which I haven't seen for years, so I'm not going to be very good at talking about that one. But I've, I've actually seen idea. it recently, and oof, I'm still yeah. reeling. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you can actually say you can certainly trace some of the themes back to classics like Frankenstein. Yeah. The idea of... You know the pursuit of excellent and knowledge, excellence and knowledge, and obs- the obsession with it, and it sort of basically biting you on the ass. Well, there's al- there's almost something kind of like dark academia in also the way that it Frankenstein was written as well. You know, raining yeah. outside, stuck inside a kind of you know all inside around the firelight, and you know books and stuff like that. There's you kind of you can understand that sort of that tone, can't you? Yeah, and, yeah, definitely. And obviously, sure. romanticism feeds hugely into dark academia as yeah, well. It, it really, really does. So um, that's just a little brief <laughs> sort of what the term actually is. So. What it basically we don't want to confuse it with magical academia, which is basically a completely separate subgenre. Yeah, it's got a very different flavour. <laughs> Definitely. So, I mean, this is my take on it. In mm. dark academia, the main focus is on learning, and it forms part a huge part of the story. The plot cannot be facilitated without it. The point of the story is knowledge, often for its own sake, and it's usually coupled with themes such as obsession, jealousy, death, murder, and often twisted love. Yeah. Um, I mean, as we said before, Dark Academia, um, it's got that kind of gothic element to it as well. Yeah. Um, you know, it's like a subsection of, of the gothic. So, of course, it's going to have those gothic kind of tropes coming into it. And I think that the two can go very much hand in hand and definitely more gothic than horror, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. Um, whereas magical academia, you are kind of thinking things like Harry Potter, but you're also thinking that I mean, if you just go and look at the magical academia or college academia, or sorry, co- college urban fantasy, yeah. um, then you'll find loads and loads of indie published stuff that's really, really popular. There's Blackbriar Academy and things like that. Where yeah, people... I mean, there's the magicians as well and Worst Witch and stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. And there's people going off to school to learn magic kind of thing. But the magic and the learning is a stepping stone to access the main plot which is not focused on knowledge for its own sake and often takes the form of a quest or adventure narrative yeah so those are the two differences uh the the main differences in in my opinion and we are mostly looking at dark (laughs) academia today it's funny to me that you could you could have like a story where two characters are on completely different subgenres. I love one that character idea. is very much magical academia, the other one's dark academia. I mean, that would I be mean, a nightmare to structure. But can you imagine co-writing something like that? And you're like, I am writing the magical academia story, and I'm writing the dark academia story. And you just, if you could structure it right, that would be a work of genius. It would be. That would just be amazing. <laughs> Um, okay, so let's talk about the aesthetic, darling. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I I, have to say, I actually like the aesthetic just in terms of 
uh, we can blame Instagram and the Instagram movement and everything like that for this yeah. in some respects. And I can understand the urge to put a selection of books together with candles and, you know, or witchy type objects and things and take yeah. pictures. And because if you create a, something of, of beauty and say, well, here you go, here's a slice of my life, then you've kind of got control over beauty itself just for a few seconds and I can understand why that would be gratifying and I really like looking at pictures of people's bookshelves because because I'm because you're me. like that yeah that's, <laughs> that's just one of my kinks okay <laughs> show me your shelf darling um. <laughs> okay <laughs> <laughs> but it, the, the interesting thing about the dark academia is you're absolutely right um it's you know those pictures the aesthetic uh but it's kind of gone even sort of beyond that. I mean, you can get Dark Academia stickers, and I know this because I have them, uh, because I like sort of scrapbooking and stuff like that. So I've got Dark Academia stickers, but you also get like Dark Academia playlists, which are great to listen to because it's suddenly people are like, oh wait, classical music is great. Yeah. Uh, let's get into that romantic stuff and sort of mix in kind of like classical recreations of certain kind of indie songs as well and it it's really really good um and i love it as well because you get these dark academia um <laughs> playlists but they've got really specific titles like um you're alone in uh, you're alone in the vast library de fervently searching through books so that you can revive your dead lover and i'm just like this so specific it really is but it kind of absolutely makes sense within the context of that yeah. particular trope doesn't okay so there's yeah. there's two main there seem to be two main types of dark academia aesthetic and as we've said they feed into the literary trope and the literary trope feeds back into them Mm -hmm. So uh, the first one, the stylish librarian. So neat, slightly old fashioned, but with stylish clothes, uh, usually a brown and neutral color palette with cream or white accents. So think blazers, brogues, blouses, cravats, gloves, hats, horn rimmed glasses, subtle designer labels, uh, generally hair neatly put up, etc. I, I can mm -hmm. absolutely promise you that no librarian I know actually looks anything like this. <laughs> This is like a zero fail sort of. <laughs> yes, it is. Um, yeah, and you are you are thinking tweed and cardigans and things, and you're thinking classical yeah. education, classy accents, effortless learning. So this projection mm -hmm. of yes, I can pick up a tome of ancient Greek and have it translated for you by lunchtime, kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, which also there's kind of a. This is funny to me because thinking of Harker and Blackthorn, <laughs> there's an element of Steve kind of within that category. And then you sort of leave Steve on his own for a little bit and he's wearing eyeliner and <laughs> you're like, oh! It's like, no, you don't. Oh, it's not. <laughs> it's like you, leave, you don't leave Steve on his own. It's like you send him out to a goth nightclub and Amy's like, we should put some eyeliner on you. It's been ages since you've worn eyeliner. <laughs> Steve comes back. Yes, I am the chaotic one. <laughs> yes, which... Which brings us to the second one. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, please go. Okay, oh. so this is obviously the, the chaotic art artist. Um, so some sort of clothes, but perpetually untidy. Uh, shirts with wine stains, crowded surfaces, piles of books and papers, too much coffee, too many late nights... 
Um, you're so into what you're studying that you don't sleep or take care of yourself. This is definitely the Victor Frankenstein kind of element. I'm not going to lie, this is probably the me element as well, <laughs> if I look at my work surfaces. <laughs> yeah. So um, anyway, these two aesthetics are important because obviously we, they feed into the literary trope. Um, and occasionally tad problematic, but we will cycle back to why that is a bit later. Yes. So let's actually look at some of the main tropes and themes of dark um, academia. Um, and I'm going to start us off by talking about the very obvious one, which is setting. So the setting tends to be an exclusive school or college with the main character, uh, sorry, which the main character may have got into on merit uh, with a heavy or a hefty scholarship. So it might literally be they're so smart that, you know, they've kind of, they've got into it, but they're almost kind of a bit of an outsider, but they're, they're into it because they are so invested in this knowledge. Yeah, definitely. There are a number of books that definitely lean into the dark academia trope. Um, yeah. where they have made up an exclusive school in, say, Vermont, or an exclusive school or conservatoire somewhere in Europe. Um, mm. And generally, the, the main character will always be studying something a bit classical, a bit classy, a bit sort of... Technically, in the real world, if you wanted to get a paying job, it, it may potentially not be that useful. Yeah. But it doesn't matter because it's this amazing piece of knowledge that not very many people can aspire to own kind of thing. And yeah, the setting's a big thing. And honestly, the setting is a big thing, a big draw for me, because I guess it's even, even someone coming from her own education from a convent school, which I can assure you is nothing like these dark academia settings. <laughs> um, it's, it's sort of the romantic escapism of the whole thing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, of course that the, the setting is appealing, and it is a huge thing. It doesn't necessarily have to be school or college either. It can be, you know, something else, some, some other sort of academic-y type place. But yeah, setting is a huge yeah. thing. There's always as well, like I think if there's no school stuff like that, there's a library, and it's an old library. Yeah, it's an old, beautiful old building library <laughs> with little nooks and stuff like that. It's never a kind of modern library. <laughs> No, no steel and chrome, <laughs> no concrete <laughs> and glass. Yeah, so um, obviously another big draw for me personally is almost all dark academia books have an eccentric mentor character who <laughs> is somewhere along a sliding scale from slightly sinister to extremely sinister. <laughs> I love the slightly sinister, extremely sinister. There's no non-sinister version of this. <laughs> No, they're, they're always playing some game of their own. Um, often, this, this person will often isolate a small select group of pet students who get special lessons. I mean, that's not supposed to sound like a euphemism. It, it, special lessons in the classical discipline of some kind. Yeah. Um, which, this this isolation from the student body, it, it's, it informs part of the story in a way that we'll go into a bit later, but... Mm. it's that sort of thing there's a there's a certain cachet involved as well as in oh we, yes we, those students we don't really know what they do there's almost like a mystical sort of aura applied to them even if what they're doing is learning ancient greek and honestly you can probably download a course and learn a fair bit of ancient greek if you want yeah. to if you have the will <laughs> um 
So yeah, uh, obviously I really like an eccentric mentor character. Yes, you do. <laughs> and it's... it's it, The thing is, like, with every year that passes, Jules becomes that eccentric mentor character. <laughs> Not quite so. yet. <laughs> but I feel like you want to be. <laughs> maybe. Maybe there is part of me that, you know... <laughs> I don't know. Do I really want a group of, like avid devotees following me around learning what I have to teach. I honestly don't think so. Yeah, but you've got me. I wouldn't say you're an avid devotee. <laughs> <laughs> you're wrong. Um... <laughs> I'm pretty sure you're only following me for Harker and Blackthorn at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> That's not true and you know it. <laughs> okay, so the next one, um, and this is obviously a big big one um is themes of self-involvement and self-obsession yeah i find this a really interesting thing to explore in fiction um not for mm. me i don't think i've really tried to do it myself personally if i'd written the entire unveiled series from lucas's perspective that would definitely have turned into dark academia <laughs> it would have it totally would have wouldn't it yeah but um the whole idea of self-involvement self-obsession i that's I suppose because it's something I would find incredibly difficult to do myself, I find it fascinating to to watch in other characters. Mm. Um, not in real life. If you meet a genuinely self-obsessed person in real life, I guarantee you're going to want to slap them. But this is the, the really interesting thing about the self-involvement and self-obsession um, part of Dark Academia. Um, again arcing back to the gothic and, and stuff like that isn't necessarily that it's a big theme within the gothic but that it's a big theme within the writers of the gothic and the romantic writers yeah and that's the thing that really interests me is that dark academia kind of is almost metafictional in some ways in that it kind of draws tropes from real life or from what we imagine to be real life so you get this self-involvement and self-obsession and you see Percy Shelley, you see Byron, you see the romantic poets um, who, you know, very much come across as quite self-obsessed um, or self-involved at their worst. Yeah. You know? Well, I mean, absolutely. Even I think at their best, there is an element of, there's a lot of ego involved, obviously, but there is an element of only I really understand, only I have the soul made of that type of fire kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And if you've yeah. ever read any of Branwell Bronte's letters, um, when mm. he's been earnestly writing to, say, Wordsworth or various others, um, where he desperately wants to be included in that group of people because he feels like that himself. So he's aspiring to be that self-involved. Yeah. It's, um, it was almost, I think, during the 19th century seen as kind of an asset if you were a poet or an artist or whatever, that yeah. you would not be properly understood by the common herd. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that that is what feeds into dark academia, which is really interesting, um, sort of drawing from kind of real life in that way. Definitely. Okay, which brings us on to another trope that you'd expect to find which is cultural touchstones so mm. you're looking at things like classical music visits to museums um classical art ancient languages often greek and latin um, mm -hmm. but sometimes old english various others um sometimes egyptian too sometimes egyptian do occult studies 
sports such as polo, rugby or rowing, so very much Oxbridge type. Yeah. Um, literature, poetry, as we've mentioned, especially the romantics. And yeah. this sort of... It's almost like a faux connection with nature because we're not talking about people who are going to go out and get their hands genuinely grubby. We're talking no. about people who want to stroll through a pastoral scene, sort of composing or... Um, you know, talking about how beautiful everything is without necessarily thinking about preserving it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And nature very much used in the sense of pathetic fallacy, if yeah, that makes sense. absolutely. Um, so nature being used to represent what you're feeling rather than you feeling what nature is presenting, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. <clears throat> yeah. Um, and like... Again, I am not surprised that these kind of these these things are such um, an important aspect of dark academia, uh, and I think to be honest, there's an element of classism which comes into it. But this kind of this um, this representation of oh, what what is it to be a young noble? What is it to be a young aristocrat? What is it to be sort of a young lord? Kind of thing. Um, and all of, you know, that sort of that aspirational element, which has been kind of woven into fiction for a very long time, um, sort of ties into it as well. Um, and again, a very, very telling that we've got that, that Oxbridge uh, kind of element, but also because you do, again, have that connection with these classic, these romantic poets who were at these universities you know? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so, we'll, we'll look at the more problematic stuff in a bit more detail. A bit yeah, later, we will. <laughs> but, um, okay, so other, other tropes associated with it. Self-discovery, often in parallel with the exploration of mortality and death. Mm, yeah. Um, I mean, what a way to discover yourself. <laughs> it is really. And, you know, in a lot of these dark academia books, the death part of it is, is actually murder. So mm. yeah, it's not looking at, it's not sort of the traditional path of discovering your mortality by having someone you love dying. Um, or it can be, but it's not all of it. Quite often it's to do with actually taking a life or being involved by knowing about someone else taking a life. It's yeah. almost that cold scientific eye without actually being scientific. So if you could have someone who very specifically studies Latin and things and and, and is entirely humanities driven, sort of looking with an unoccluded eye at the process of death in, ter in emotional terms, if that yeah. makes sense. It's just really... There's, there's something quite sinister, but also fascinating about it. Sort of, you discover who you are at the moment of someone else's death, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and again, we are seeing elements of this in some of the classic romantic gothic literature too. Yeah. Um, but again, what's very interesting is, as you've said, the scientific aspect that comes into it. Um, because obviously the gothic and stuff tend to, to kind of think more about the occultism and stuff like that. But there, you're absolutely right that um, I think with dark academia, yes, there is this kind of occultism element that sort of obviously plays into it, which we'll touch on later. Um, but also that very scientific element too, the coldness um, that is associated with that. Um, 
and what's interesting then is how these things all link into the search for morality humanity yeah and the self and uh, usually at a certain point at least one character will say there is no morality those who know and can do do those who don't are below us yeah, it, it, very much yeah. playing into the the Le Marquis de Sade philosophy there. Yeah, it, it's um, <laughs> disturbing. Again, I find all this stuff really fascinating. I'm not saying it's aspirational, obviously. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so intense and often unhealthy friendships. Yeah, codependency. <laughs> but also, you know, uh, betrayal and... <laughs> and obsession. and Yeah, as again, yeah. We'll, we'll explain this better with some of the examples we've got later, but yeah yeah um knowledge for knowledge's sake and the price you pay for that now i'm actually a big fan for of like knowing something just for the sheer joy of knowing it i'm fine with that i'm not actually willing to murder people to get that (laughs) which is good to know which is good to um good to know (laughs) (laughs) um yeah Yeah. but i suppose i mean the mild end of the scale here on dark academia is Knowing something for its own sake, you, you, and you see this in a lot of main characters, they start off knowing something and being kind of an insufferable bore because they know it, and they don't know how much they don't actually know. And then yeah. at the other end of the scale, it's, um, yeah, you they know it, they've put it into practice, and it's had some very dark results. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's quite interesting as well, because, you know, as you've, you've just said, we, we've got that element of... Um, there are some who in dark academia where it's purely theoretical knowledge um and they often kind of make up the sort of the when i say the mental character more like the unwilling mental character in that people go to them and say you know you've got expertise in this and they're like oh this is purely you know theoretical of course i'd never put it into action because that would be horrific you know it's a bit the sort of the slughorn kind of yeah, I mean, uh, of, certainly you know, the later Harry Potter books. I wouldn't say they're ever dark academia, but they take a couple of dark academia themes, don't they? Yeah, it definitely feels like Slughorn, if it was told from his story, it would be dark academia, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. And he has a pupil who, you know, starts to take an interest. And because he's so invested in the idea, he, he can't withhold that information. Um, But he can... Uh, you know, but he would never put it into practice because it's so dark. Yeah, definitely. You know? um, so, yeah. <laughs> um, you then get romanticism with a touch of existential, sorry, existential dread. Yeah. Um, <laughs> which is just, isn't that just every day? <laughs> well, I don't know about the romanticism. Um, this is absolutely borrowed almost directly from you know, Wordsworth, Shelley, Byron, etc. Yeah. The, the romantics and the nature poets. Yeah. Um, you know, look how beautiful it is. Look how wonderful the world we live in. Isn't it wonderful? What a pure soul I've got. Oh, and by the way, we are but dust kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they just they just had depression before they knew what depression was. I think the problem is they kind of reveled in it. They they absolutely did. Yeah, they really really did. Um, and it was also that kind of uh, the the idea with sort of the romanticism as well, which is the beauty of suffering, the beauty of being sad, the beauty of wasting away. Yeah, you know the beauty of a tormented soul. That's oh so romantic. 
um, not particularly healthy or aspirational, um, but it has created a lot of very amazing art. So um, <laughs> the romanticism, you know, kind of feeds into that. And yeah, I think you can't really have romanticism without that touch of existential dread, to be honest. No, definitely. Uh, but it's as Jane Austen says in uh, Persuasion, where she has one mm. character who he is kind of wallowing in a, a grief state and he's doing it through yep. poetry. And she actually has her main character say, well, yes, I love all of those poets too, but I feel that what she's... And she says it in, in a really tactful way, but I feel what you're doing is you're actually feeding the less worthy notions of what you feel. So perhaps you should try reading some of these things. And she sort of puts him on some essays and stuff as well. And he actually balances himself out quite well. <laughs> kind of like think about this as well poetry's great but you can't live on poetry yeah absolutely um so yeah other thing we, we, i mean madeline's just mentioned the art and suffering aspect which is a huge yeah. thing dark academia obviously the old-fashioned style again we talked about the aesthetic yeah um and the pursuit of excellence again i'm all for the pursuit of excellence but i do have a line that i would not cross and dark yeah. academia seems to really enjoy flirting, if not directly crossing that line. I think sometimes yeah. the the start of the book and it's like the line is a dot in on the horizon. <laughs> well, I wasn't meant to cross that. Never mind. Uh... Line? What line? <laughs> I mean, that's smudging. Victor Frankenstein just at no point while digging up a dead body, going, "Is this right?" <laughs> Just fervently continue. Yeah, it's that idea um, that, you know, there are no rules for genius. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay, so now that we've kind of looked through the kind of main tropes, um, and there will be others as well, but these these are the kind of the standing ones, as it were, um, I think we should probably address some of the more problematic elements within that. Yeah, um, and this isn't a deliberate just just a pop at dark academia because every genre and subgenre has its own potential to misstep but because yeah. of the relationship between dark academia and the aesthetic of dark academia mm. um and people desperately desperately wanting that escapism and wanting it in a way where the lines between reality blur a little bit Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, and what um, this is not me patronising people and saying that they they're not able to distinguish between reality and fantasy. What I'm talking about is, have you ever read a book where you desperately, desperately wanted something to be real? Because I absolutely have, several yeah. in fact. And I can remember at one point when I'd been reading his dark materials, I passionately wanted a demon. Yeah, and I was having a really hard time. It, it was a really difficult time in my life as well when I was at university. And it wasn't that I believed that that was happening. It was just a case of, no, I want to escape into this. I, I felt that strong pull. And this was before yeah. things like Instagram and a lot of social media. So I can't imagine what the pull is like now. If you feel like I felt then and you desperately yeah. want that escapism and people are just showing you pictures of things that almost look tangible. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, and again, there's several reasons at which we're going to kind of look into 
now about why that starts to be dangerous. And this is not, again, as Jules said, this is not a, oh, weak-willed people. No, it really can happen to all of us. It's definitely happened to me, as Jules said, it definitely happened to her. Um, in our desperate kind of need for escapism, in our need to kind of pursue something which is making us happy, particularly during times when we're not happy, um, or we're very stressed or things like that. We can lean into things and become quite obsessive. Um, I think the internet has demonstrated that people are like that anyway, especially when it comes to certain fandoms, certain things like that. <laughs> yep. um, and the problem with dark academia is that if you lean into it too much, you start to be exposed to certain ideas um, and certain themes and things like that, which are not actually aspirational. And I think people recognise that they're not aspirational, they're not ideal, um, but they also, in trying to kind of insert themselves into this as much as possible, they end up leaning into them. And I'm not saying that people sort of will be like, oh, I love dark academia, and then like two months later they're out committing murder. Um, well, we're talking yeah. about <laughs> some of the other problems associated with it. So um, let's let's kind of look at them. Uh, so I think one of the first ones is the worship of intellect um, to the exclusion of all else, you know, that God complex uh, element that's coming through. Yeah, definitely. Um, and, and, you know, as somebody who has a, a, a potential weakness towards sort of um, intellectual snobbery, I, I get it. I, I genuinely mm. do. And it, this isn't necessarily even out of a desire to be special or set apart from your peers or anything. This is just a, I love this so much that, or I love this subject so much that it's taken on a disproportionate amount of value in terms of looking at my overall life. Yeah. And sometimes the only way you can justify that is by developing a bit of a God complex. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think as well, what happens is that you start to kind of process this idea that um, intellect, and very particularly academic intellect, represents the highest form and the most important form and encompasses all the other forms of intellect as well. Which isn't correct, and I know this because I work in academia. Um, and yes, I work in, a huma I work in the humanitarian... Uh, Humanities. Sorry, no. No, it's the humanitarian, thank you. No. When did you go for Greenpeace? <laughs> no, sorry, the humanities. I, as I was saying it, I was like, that's not right. Um, <laughs> and I do work in it. This is just demonstrates my point further. Um, uh, that a lot of academics, um, you know, we're proportioned, yes, there are certain kind of leanings, there's a certain type of intelligence and it's and it's to do with kind of questioning, but each of the different sort of lines, is, uh, sorry, not lines, each of the different subjects is going to have different kind of strengths. Um, and that doesn't mean that we are the authority on all intellectual things. Someone who is a doctor, yes, I will definitely trust them when it comes to doctor issues medical knowledge they are probably going to know more about it than i am but that doesn't necessarily mean that i'm going to trust them on other aspects um on emotional intelligence you know social intelligence etc um there are lots of different types 
um, and they are not all encompassed in this academic excellence no. either. And the other aspect to consider is the fact that intelligence is not quantitative, it's qualitative, and you can change yeah. the quantity. So, yes, okay, you might start off with the, an average intellect, but it's what you do yeah. with it and how you develop it that actually counts. Or you might start the race, I don't know, three, ten miles down the track from somebody else. I, I mean, I've, I've got a friend who has a PhD in mathematics and, um, you know, if you want to look at the more esoteric forms of maths, then, then she's your girl kind of thing. Um, and she's, you know, absolutely. It's not that I can't follow what she's doing. It's just that I have to work so much harder in order to follow her because while I don't suck at maths, I'm actually not wired that way. Yeah. But if she wanted languages, she'd probably ask me because I pick up languages very, very quickly. Um, so it's you, you have different tendencies in different areas. And if you spend time learning things and improving, then there's no reason you can't you can't do you can't do well or you can't learn. I think part yeah. of the problem is that certainly for my generation they kind of started kids off with this is a bright child this is a not very bright child and I think they started diverging us too early on into sort of yeah. people who should learn practical skills people who should go into academia or should go into more in supposedly intellectual pursuits and it's just simply not that it's not that simple yeah um, yeah absolutely I mean, certainly if I'd, if I'd followed what my teacher said, I would not be in academia. <laughs> they were like, this is a, this is a, yes. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, maybe you'll be good at this kind of stuff. <laughs> it's like, I, th I mean, my, my next sister down from me, she is a, um, she's a matron of a orthopedic ward. So she literally runs that part of the hospital. Mm. And, you know, she's done all sorts of, of things in, in her career in nursing. And she... I think she went on and did get her degree in nursing. She could not get the grade required in her GCSE maths. She she took she retook her GCSE in maths three times and each time she got a D, she could not physically get it higher. And they said I mean initially when she was a, she kept applying to for, to do the nursing course and they kept saying, "Yeah, as soon as you've got your D in maths." And she's like, "Look, I've been working as a healthcare assistant for 2 years. I've been doing all this stuff. I've advanced up through I just, I can't do it. I cannot get that passing grade, but I really, really want really want this as a career. And they've just said, you know what, sort the requirement. And yeah. they were absolutely right if you look at what she's done, because a D in mathematics that you're probably never really going to learn, going to use, is, is not necessarily, you know, it's, it's a guideline. And that's the thing you have to remember with with grades and things quite often they're guidelines they're not indications of how well someone's going to do yeah they're also you know sometimes they're just indications of how well people handle exams yeah and, that, and that's it <laughs> so. yeah definitely um I, okay. I think i might be able to pass a soil physics exam now but i fucking well couldn't <laughs> at university i've had some sort of mental block okay i'm gonna jump back one because we sort of missed out something that i did want to talk about which is oh yeah um the romanticization of behind the scenes at academia i mean i love the whole mentor character thing and like oh yes he's an institution or she's an institution 
we can't get her out. She teaches just half a dozen students a year. She's got full tenure. Um, no one tells her what to be on her course. She just decides who passes. She's a very unusual exam marking system. Yeah. Very elite. And I'm like, I don't work in a university, but I'm damn sure that's not how that works. Yep, you're absolutely right. <laughs> Pretty sure you have to justify your existence the whole time if you're a lecturer. You do. Even with you, tenure. You... Yeah, you really have to justify your existence. Um, it depends. I think in certain things there are parts where a, an academic, by being part of the university, is a massive draw. Yeah. So there's kind of, okay, their presence here seems to be a massive draw, but they still have to kind of work for it, if that makes sense. And they still do have to 100% adhere to kind of the rules that are, are sort of are put forward um you cannot kind of play around with that because uh, it does need to be standardized marking <laughs> for one thing <laughs> yeah. there are some very strict rules on how you know everything is assessed and stuff like that um and yeah there is kind of d between modules and between sort of courses things will vary because obviously different things are required but it is kind of it's all formulated in a very very specific way um, so I think there's an element of maybe you got more of that in the past, but certainly not presently. There's I, I don't I don't know of, of any kind of I don't know of any person at, certainly at, at any university who's like yes I am one hundred I'm so secure in my position here that I can do what I want. Yeah, and only teach six <laughs> people a year. It's like no, yeah. I don't think so. That's not that's not happening. <laughs> Unless, unless what they're doing is because obviously you can get different sort of um, uh, kind of jobs as a lecturer, where actually the main part of what you're hired to do is the research aspect. Yeah, absolutely. So you can have people who don't actually do that much teaching because they're doing a lot of either administrative elements or because they're doing a lot of research instead, which is. Uh, in relation which is you know for the university in relation to the university so you do get that but like like even then you've got to you've got to be working <laughs> yeah, you can't just be like well i do what i want that there's yeah not in this climate so it's just a just a reminder that obviously it's fantasy dark academia is definitely fantasy whether there's yes. actual magic involved or not exactly um, other things elitism and mm. you know as much as I love the whole classic aesthetic and, you know, the stylish librarian type idea and, you know, the, the slightly wistful looking back sort of to, to the heyday, the days of Tolkien, etc. When, you know, he really didn't want to do much teaching, by the way. He just wanted to write in Old English and write about his hobbits and stuff. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, I... <laughs> I get that that nostalgia that I, that idea of going back and you know being in this this environment that kind of sort of embraces you and it just teaches you kind of thing but it's yeah it's really really tied into classism and elitism we think yeah. oxbridge and the beautiful buildings the architecture and things and yes you can in theory get in on scholarships definitely i looked at doing an oxbridge route at one point and you know would never have been able to afford it um, uh, but <laughs> there, there are things like in a, in a an interview to get into sort of art history uh, or whatever in in an Oxford college. There's a random test, and the random test is to comment and you know 
identify pieces of art that you might not have seen, but a kid from a much more wealthy um, family would have seen actually physically in person because they, you know, they go to Italy every year. Yeah. So, you know, they've had, they've had the opportunity to travel and see all these museums and see these pieces, and they've been doing it since they were a child. And you cannot tell me that is not a huge advantage over somebody who has maybe never left England because their family cannot afford holidays abroad. Yeah. You know, they don't have multiple properties. They don't have lots of money. They're literally here because they've worked really, really fucking hard. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's... It's one of the kind of the the difficulties as well, and it, the I think the other thing is that it does hark back again to those very very old kind of ideas of of kind of the the inherent goodness or the inherent right of the noble classes. Though I do feel like something which happens a lot in dark academia is that the character themselves comes from a relatively poor background, or the character has kind of gotten in through scholarship and then they have to face up against some very snooty people around them. Yeah, that can absolutely be one, something that gets explored, definitely. Yeah. But um, quite often that character wants to be on the inside with that elite circle with those very wealthy yeah. kids. Yeah. It's rare for a dark academia book or film or whatever to be sort of, I don't want to be on the inside, fuck you, kind of thing. Yeah. And also I think there's this kind of um, and again, I, I can't complain about it because I did it with Rufus, uh, where you have it kind of also puts forward this idea that, e look, either you're rich, so you get to be there, or you have to be an absolute genius. Otherwise, you don't deserve to be there. Um, otherwise, you don't deserve to kind of to have access to this knowledge. Um, you know. <laughs> yeah, it, it, is the, it is the elitism thing. I, I mean, I kind of... I'm a bit more forgiving if it's a case of no you there are some things that not everybody can go because some people just don't have the maths for something there are yeah. things that I would not be physically able to do or mentally able to do because the speed at which I would have to run to keep up with even the slowest person who's on that track who can do it normally would would yeah. slow everybody down and that's not fair that's not fair to the people who can actually do it so you know what's not everybody can do everything not everyone can be whatever they want to be that yeah. that's life sometimes you play the cards that you get dealt but we don't have to make it as hard as it actually is and it is very much still kind of a, an old families pat each other on the back kind of thing yeah absolutely or you've got uh, plenty of of money in the, the most recent few generations Yes. And you know, look, I know people who've gone to Oxford and I know people who've gone to Cambridge. Incredibly smart. Um, incredibly hardworking. So I'm I'm not trying to say <laughs> oh look, either you're a complete genius, um, or you got in only because of money, because that obviously isn't the case necessarily. Um it, it will obviously also depend on the course and stuff like that as well. Yeah. But I think all in all, we do have to acknowledge kind of this issue, particularly in the way that it's depicted in Dark Academia. Definitely. Okay, so um, next on the list. Um, the self-obsession and self-importance element. 
Yeah, which we did kind of discuss before, but yeah, that, that yeah. idea that only I can truly understand something, ergo I am set apart. And it's the, the uh, <laughs> I get it because you kind of see it, and I don't mean to say this, I don't mean any offence by this, but you see it in fandoms where you get a group of people who are like really intensely locked into something to the point where they lose all perspective of the outside world and the fact that the people on the outside there's nothing wrong with them. They just, they're not really locked into your fandom in the same way. And actually, they've kind of got a broader perspective on things. Yeah. <laughs> and that maybe every so often you should maybe venture out of your fandom. I mean, with Dark Academia, the fandom is usually over some arcane piece of knowledge or classical Greek or or something like that. Mm. And th- yeah. there's no reason you can't be nerdy over things like that. Absolutely. Yeah. But- I mean, we'd be massive hypocrites if we said that you couldn't. Definitely. Because. <laughs> but we don't sort of look at everyone who isn't interested in folklore, for example. It's like, hi, you are a mere pleb. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, yes. So also the Victorians is another. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, this does feed into the elitism, classism thing, obviously, because they really took the original elitism classism thing and really entrenched it they really did i mean like they almost wanted it if that makes sense yes they were like no no we need this we really need this and i think perhaps the thing that was worse was that they perpetuated this idea that and it wasn't necessarily deliberately because you can't say yes all the people born in the victorian era all got together in a conclave and decided this but yeah enough people in positions of influence kind of were shutting doors i think is yeah. the way to look at things and was were then perpetuating this idea that it had always been that way and therefore it should not be challenged because it had the weight of tradition behind it yeah um which is very dangerous obviously for for a number of reasons um but was also largely untrue and the victorians were very very good at rewriting history in that way yeah certainly uh being very economical with the facts and giving it a a victorian polish yes they did like their victorian polish for some reason that sounds really dirty (laughs) it does now you've said it like that Uh, Uh, A criticism I have seen levelled at Dark Academia, which I don't fully agree with, and I think this is something that will actually level itself out over time, is that it's very pale. And again, this plays into the idea that if you're going to take an entire subgenre and basically base it on the classical British old-fashioned school system, you know, Eton, Oxbridge, etc., then you are going to get certain things cropping up which are that most of the cast is probably going to be white and most of the cast is probably going to be male. But if you look at the gradual progression of dark academia, it's opening up and it's like any other genre because it started here. It looks like Mm. this and it can absolutely get better. That doesn't mean we shouldn't challenge that and say, Hmm, yes, maybe, maybe we could get a few more faces in there because you know what? There are some very wealthy black and Indian etc families who do have students at these sort of elite colleges and things well yeah and that again that was the thing as well is that if you look at kind of the history for example of a lot of boarding schools and stuff like that you know a lot of it um does sort of play into kind of wealthy uh families from 
uh, from the UAE, from Africa, from etc., who were like, no, we'd like our children to go and study in the UK, um, and thus they will need appropriately glamorous, um, you know, accommodation while they're boarding and stuff like that. Um, And so it it, it kind of always (laughs) makes me laugh because I'm just there like, why why are you pretending this is all, you know, this is all white? Uh, Because historically it definitely (laughs) wasn't for a very long period of time. Um, You definitely have uh, these other elements. And also the other thing is that um, academia is not was not and has never been the exclusive thing of you know of Europe. Absolutely not. Um, yeah, y- you don't have to go really f- that far back. <laughs> In fact, you really don't have to go far back at all, or go back to be honest, to find um, you know the huge well how much knowledge was gained from you know the UAE um, before it was the UAE. You know. Uh, from across or the Ottoman Empire when it was the Ottoman Empire etc so you know um, I completely agree it's something which should be challenged but I also think you're right that it will even itself out Um, but it is worth considering and it is worth remembering that the aesthetic again is very much based on a very very specific thing only yeah yeah definitely Okay, so next <laughs> um, is the pursuit of knowledge equals destruction. Now, again, um, I keep talking about it. This idea really comes forward definitely in things like um, uh, Frankenstein. Yeah. And I think that things like Frankenstein have kind of pushed this into it because it, it kind of links in with a romantic kind of the romantic ideals and stuff like that and it fails to kind of grasp the the question of actually um it's not about the pursuit of knowledge it's about the pursuit of knowledge without any without moral guidance essentially yeah i mean the obsessive pursuit of anything i mean i've seen it in some literary works where someone has pursued love or beauty or something like that to the exclusion of all else and all other considerations and it is just as damaging it really really is (laughs) Uh, and the thing is um with this kind of obviously we sort of people go oh yeah dark academia and they don't think about sci-fi uh, which is obviously what Mary Shelley was writing uh, when she wrote sort of Frankenstein. Um, and this kind of this question of um, what is morally happening uh, and people go, oh, yes, uh, you know, this is a story about kind of running forward and, and not sort of thinking about, you know, anything else. He's so passionate about knowledge and failed to un- uh, failed to grasp kind of what was again happening during that period, which might have linked in with some of these fears, which is, you know, the moral quandary of cutting up dead bodies. The fact that people knew that realistically some of the dead bodies, some of the dead cadavers that doctors were getting hold of, they were not getting hold of legally, etc. You know, this is all playing into the fears of the time in the same way that the fears of, all right, well, we create AI, but is that the right thing to do? Um, 
etc. It's a question of we've got to consider the possibilities of the consequences of our actions. It's not actually saying knowledge is bad. Yeah, definitely. Okay, another thing that I, I actually kind of agree with this as a criticism is that it can romanticise mental illness. So we talked about that second aesthetic, you know, the chaotic energy, the suffering artist, someone who clearly isn't looking after themselves because they're not sleeping, they're not eating, they're walking around in stained clothes, everything's a mess. It's like, actually, that's a sign of somebody who is in generally in, in some phase of, of manic depression, yeah, and they're probably not actually creating very good art or literature or what have you at that point in time, because it's not that you cannot suffer from depression or anxiety or mental illness and create. Obviously, you can, but if you are in the throes of a particular phase of it, then that's yeah. not conducive to actually creating much at all. And you are actually in a stage where you should be trying to look after yourselves and other people should be trying to look after you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and the thing is as well that I think, again, this plays into one of the big reasons that a lot of people have kind of heavily associated with dark academia, particularly during COVID, is that they were feeling depressed. They Things might have been feeling quite chaotic. They might have found that, you know, things weren't as tidy and this might have just been the general state of things and untidiness isn't necessarily you know an indication of um no you're doing something wrong um different people have different kind of styles and different approaches to art so some people might have a messy workshop because they actually find that it stimulates them um in some ways but it's not just about the aesthetic it's about the deeper implications of it um, and this idea that, yes, to kind of really understand this is to suffer. Um, and that to in order to kind of be able to sort of justify this, uh, you know, this interest, you've, you've got to go full out. Otherwise, you're not really doing it right. Yeah. You know, if you're not staying up all night for weeks and weeks and weeks and not thinking about food um or just kind of to always eating junk and just to you know sacrificing everything else all in the pursuit of this one thing you don't really care about it you're not really worthy of it um and that's just not right no um i mean i can absolutely assure anybody who's listening it is possible to write multiple books in a year and also eat a relatively healthy balanced diet exercise every day even if it's just going for a walk and have a rule whereby you do not write after a certain time at night because you know that your brain will stay awake and you won't sleep properly and you can keep to a regular <laughs> sleep schedule get up and you can you can still produce good or good for your genre or whatever um books you can produce good art by looking after yourself you do not have to drive yourself to the point of mental breakdown Yes, and I should also say to all of the listeners who um, are thinking, oh God, am I doing it wrong because I can't do that. Jules is... Jules. Um, <laughs> so if you if you can't quite manage that, that's okay. Um, but the point is that Jules's point that you don't need to be suffering and that to be able to write well, to be able to pursue knowledge, etc. doesn't require that you sacrifice everything else. Um, that that shouldn't ever be and we shouldn't glorify that idea either um it's not correct 
And the fact of the matter is, is that um, throughout history, we have had many, many brilliant creators and stuff like that um, who have not, you know, who have taken care of themselves or most importantly, and this is something that you need to remember, um, have been taken care of consistently by other people yeah someone has nudged them to actually sleep and eat etc i I guess so this whole sort of oh well you know i cannot eat and sleep that's okay because they didn't really need to be thinking about doing it for themselves because they had servants who'd be like all right come on my lord um you need to eat something or wives or you know other people who were kind of making them do it um and the fact of the matter is is that most people i assume who are listening to this podcast are not going to have that um and you know it's it was all fake that's the other thing it was all fake this whole kind of oh i cannot eat or sleep only the very very extreme people and there were some of them uh were genuinely like that you know realistically yeah absolutely Uh, for the most part it was just a kind of it was an act um, it was all part of the aesthetic of what they were doing and what they felt was right. Um, they weren't actually genuinely like that constantly. They literally couldn't be because someone would be preventing them from being like that. Yeah, and little sidebar just on this bit, the whole romanticization of mental illness. Because it's dark academia and it's often set in college and things, I this, this one kind of worries me just because so many people go off to university or college, feel out of their depth, and many people experience a bout of mental illness for the first time at university or college. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't think it should be presented as like an aspirational thing. And that's why, while the aesthetic, there's something sort of chaotically pleasing about it, the aesthetic mm. should not be considered anything other than, you know, it's fantasy, it's fantasy pictures. It's not, yeah. it's not, it's not real life. Real life doesn't and probably shouldn't look like that. Yeah. Um, and also, it's not aspirational. Yeah. If if things if things have gotten that bad, seek help. Um, don't see it as right. Well, this is actually the way things are supposed to be. They're not. Yeah. They're not supposed to be like that. You you are not born to suffer. Um, that is not the purpose of life. <laughs> yeah. Um. The, there's also the problem of the rose tinted glasses, whereby you know you feel like you want to go back to a simpler time, maybe a time without Instagram where you don't feel this pressure to control beauty and to project a certain image out all the time or or what have you. Um, And that's fine. And you can absolutely love things like the 60s aesthetic. You can love Mm. 50s style. You can love classical music. You can think, I would really love to be back in sort of the 1880s because you're thinking Mm. about it in fantastical terms. And there's nothing wrong with sort of loving the aesthetic or loving certain aspects of it. The only thing that I would caution is that the the art and literature of a time um, cannot entirely be separated from its influences. Yeah. And even though art is subversive, it tends to pick up a, a pattern of, of the attitudes of the time, which by our standards would generally be quite racist, classist, <laughs> sexist. I mean, not yeah. everywhere in a specific time was like that and certainly not everyone thought that way not every not everyone in victorian england was a raging misogynist okay but it was easier to be one because the perceived attitude from the people who were in power made it easier to be like that yeah which means that some of the art and things while fascinating 
should also be considered with that context and the same with anything from the 1940s or anything from the 1960s you know we were still mm. you know hemlines had shortened definitely but we still had things that we were fighting against that we were trying to improve yeah absolutely um I th- I, <laughs> it's, someone's someone made a really really good point about it they and they were just there like um uh you know people like oh why can't i just you know go to a milkshake parlor it's like you can you absolutely can at any point now you can (laughs) you can go to a milkshake parlor you can get that whole kind of that whole sort of vibe going um the fact is that you are what you are imagining because you're like no but it wouldn't be the same no because what you're imagining is a fantasy it's not based on any kind of form of reality um, you could dress up in a nice, pretty, you know, in nice, pretty clothes and go to a milkshake parlor, um, and you would you're chasing an aesthetic, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. You know, I would be it would be massively hypocritical for me to be like, oh, judgy, because like I totally do that as well. N- not the milkshake thing, but you know, in other ways, I totally do that. Um, so there's nothing wrong with that, but you've got kind of got to understand that. Um, you are chasing an aesthetic and that's and it's important to recognize that it is just an aesthetic yeah definitely okay (sighs) so (laughs) um the perceived importance of humanities as a deep dive into the human experience the exclusion of more day-to-day practical skills and subjects i mean i'm awful humanities being important because i feel that humanities teach you how to think rather than giving you a rigid set of things to think but they should be used in conjunction with things that are factually provable so whenever someone tries to argue that maths is racist for example or maths is sexist i tend to give them some side eye because maths is just maths it's just numbers and if you make the numbers, if the numbers work, then the numbers work. And it's a, it's as simple as that. There isn't very much you can pick apart there. I'm sorry, I'm really confused as to how on earth can maths be racist? Uh, because the maths, as the way it is taught now, was apparently developed by white supremacists. And I'm like, actually, it was developed by Greeks who considered themselves white and they considered the Celts yellow and they considered everybody else black. So regardless of skin colour but also I mean <laughs> has, didn't a lot of mathematics and stuff like that continue to kind of be produced by you know in Egypt and in Syria and stuff like that as well oh yeah we? a lot I of mean, geometry our, our numbers are literally um, Arabic yeah yeah absolutely but apparently the way it's this is part of the, a specific agenda which you know I don't want to get too derailed on but yeah that, that that's basically my point is yes humanity is great deep dive into the human experience also very interesting but you must emerge from that introspection at certain points because sometimes your gas bill is just your gas bill it's it's yes. you know it's a fact you you need fuel in order to be able to heat your house so yes um it really isn't about the price of your soul or at least it shouldn't be I- <laughs> I, th- I think the other thing with the kind of the dark uh, sort of the dark academia which sort of plays into why there's this huge kind of surge of the interest in kind of uh, the humanities is the fact that 
um, a lot of people are obviously are very interested in the humanities. They they have uh, humanity um, degrees and stuff like that. And currently, the humanities within our within the UK certainly are very much kind of being put down. Yeah. Um, you know, so things like particularly sort of within the arts, uh, English still sort of acceptable, but. Um, you know, certainly within any more of the kind of the creative things, these things are being cut from curriculums. Uh, they're kind of being narrowed out. They're not being seen as practical. Um, it's, you know, like, for example, okay, so creative writing, people are just they're like, eh, but what practical skills does creative writing have? And I'm like, pretty much it's it's good to be able to kind of use a language well. I mean, advertising marketing social media writing entertainment it's so much more than well i want to write a book jesus christ if you were writing a report up on something you discovered in astrophysics being able to actually compose an essay well in a way that's accessible to other people who don't have your level of expertise is essential and that is what so many scientists have difficulty with believe it or not i mean if you can access both humanities and science and things regardless you know a lot of science isn't actually practical Um, (laughs) you can't you can't use it on a day-to-day basis when i say practical i mean knowing the basics of how to cook for example yes knowing how to put to get put up some shelves stuff that will get you through your life so that you don't have to hire someone in to do something very basic you could do for yourself yeah um so yeah, so I think the the thing is because there has been this kind of attack on the humanities um, within sort of governance and stuff like that, and that there it's kind of just being shoved to the side. People who love it are kind of becoming ultra defensive of it. Um, and the fact of the matter is, is look, I love the humanities. I really, really do. I think that their importance has been under understated by certain sort of people in power who who just don't really consider what it actually has to offer um and why it is an important why the humanities are important and shouldn't just be cut or thrown to the side um but at the same time i also recognize that um there's the you know there's nuance to it it's not the answer to everything um, and we cannot, pre- and it's not pretending to be the answer to anything, and we cannot um, maintain the illusion that it is. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think a lot of this sort of almost comes from this idea of, oh, well, it wasn't my favourite subject and I struggled with it, ergo, it doesn't have any value because I could never got on with it. Yeah. And it's like, you know what? I never really got on with geography, but I'm not going to pretend that it's not a useful fucking subject. <laughs> yes. <laughs> It's like knowing where things are is actually quite useful. It's like, like I wasn't that great at science, okay, but I'm, I'm, I still, I, I'm still thoroughly kind of invested in it being an important. Subject. It's like you're, you're not going to say no, no, I don't like science. Ergo, I'm not going to take antibiotics because science yeah. was just useless. But also, it's like a, it's like I, I don't like science. Therefore, I'm not going to use a mobile phone. Like, what, what do you think is happening here? It's like, I'm not good at physics. Well, I guess that means no internet for me. Like, shut up. Anyway, uh... <laughs> so yes, I mean, basically, the the whole divide between the two is ridiculous because mm. you know some things are just factual. Okay, 
You know, numbers are just factual. You can do what you want with them, but for day-to-day -day purposes, they are just there. As in, that's the bill. That's how much you owe. It's, it's <laughs> like, no, no amount of deep diving and soul searching is going to change the number on that bottom line. You can't, you, you absolutely can't eat introspection. Believe me, I've tried. <laughs> Um, so. Not that it's wrong to be introspective. No, no, but not at all. But time and place. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, our, our final potential cautionary one is knowledge is power, which we probably don't really need to explain too much. But if you have so much focus on knowledge is power, and again, it, a, a lot of these things, I mean, the whole thing with the humanities, I suppose, is that, yes, it teaches you how to think and how to assess and analyse and things, which are all highly transferable skills. But mm. it's this idea that... Um, you know that you're. It, there's a, there's an inclusiveness to it. You know you're seeing everyone as as another person. Whereas if you're coming from the perspective of knowledge is power, you're forcing this this cold, dark, adapted scientific eye through the filter of humanities, whereby you have knowledge, ergo you have the power, and no, and once again everyone else is pleb, a plebs kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and which is you know a big theme in dark academia. So. Yes, it's fascinating to explore, but again, please don't ever think this is aspirational. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, look, I think the problem with knowledge is power is that yes, having knowledge is a powerful thing, but again, what do we mean by what, you know what do we mean by power? <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> I think it was you know it's meant to be an aspirational thing. Ah, knowledge is power. Yes, it is good to be knowledgeable. It is good to kind of um, you know to wish to learn and stuff like that um but not so much i have the knowledge therefore i have the power therefore i am superior that's when it starts to get a little bit suspect definitely okay we're gonna finish off by looking at some examples we're not going to do really like in-depth looks at these because basically um these are all things you can go and check out for yourself and you may have dark academia books and films that and not on this very short list and that's mm. great we love recommendations you can recommend to us i absolutely have not read all the dark academia books i intend to read in my lifetime um, <laughs> and i can't comment on on some some things either um there's only really one thing on this list where i've i've included it and i haven't actually read the book yet but i've included it because it's by two ukrainian authors mm. so if you wanted to support um someone creating art in the Ukraine, um, then you might consider Vita Nostra, which is by Maria and Sergei Dishenenko. Um, and it is a series of dark academia type of books. And apparently it's absolutely brilliant. It's been in my TBR for ages and I just haven't got to it yet. So I'm just going to mention that one. Okay, that's great. Thank you. Okay, so I'm going to just briefly talk about The Secret History by Donna Tart to start with. And this was a recommendation mm -hmm. of mine a while back. I'd been meaning to read it for ages and I finally got to it. This is the one set at the exclusive college in Vermont with a mentor who teaches classics, so Greek and Latin, ancient Greek mm -hmm. and Latin. And they are, he only takes on, I think, seven pupils in a term. And it's right. a very, very elite little group. And they become so insular and so absolutely sort of laser focused on it that everything else kind of slips away. And there are weird, intense friendships between the group members. What it all comes down to is a, a basically a scholarship student manages. To, he has a bit of a talent for classics 
and mm. he was doing them as a kind of a minor subject but he gets invited into this group and it becomes an absolute obsession for him like it does for all of them and it then takes over as his major course of study and as you go on in the narrative you discover that actually what has happened is that this group has become so intensely focused on it they have tried to inspire divine madness as it has been experienced and described in classical greek literature where they tried to bring this divine madness on themselves out in the woods and it resulted in the unfortunate murder of a classmate who used to be in the group before and it goes on from there and it's kind of like you would think at that point when you're becoming accessory to murder by knowing something that you'd wake up but that's not what happens and it looks just how deeply this this mentor has his hooks into this group and how they interact with each other um it's an incredibly sort of intense read i know some people haven't liked it and they've said it's slow but the point is it's kind of a slow reveal but it it feels as pressurized as a spy thriller (laughs) in my opinion anyway um yeah it is the quintessential dark academia text that sounds really intense (laughs) it is really intense it's really good and i suppose for me it works because i have got an interest in languages particularly dead languages so yeah oh i've noticed (laughs) (laughs) also also on my list uh ninth house by lee bardugo which i have i I still think is her best book to date and i'm really looking forward to the next book in the series um this is someone who really has not had the best start in life, who ends up with a scholarship to Yale. And it re- it sort of looks... This is something we didn't really mention in the list of pros and cons. And that is, mm. you have... The, you know, obviously, the American college system where you have the, the Delta Kappa News, etc. And their, their yeah. sorority and fraternity houses. Um, what if you had these houses, and some of them the most ancient, the Bone House, for example, the Ninth House was actually involved in the occult. <laughs> um, and I, I've talked about it at a, a reasonable amount of length before. It's a slow burn one. It's going to take time to get into, but it is really, really good. I highly recommend that as a dark academia. And again, murder. There's always murder. <laughs> <laughs> um, another... this. I See, I'm just going to say, oh, I love this. I love this, because apparently this is my bag, okay? This is your bag, yeah. <laughs> if We Were Villains by M.L. Rio. Um, this, slightly differently set, instead of being an exclusive college, this is an exclusive sort of acting school where they focus entirely on Shakespeare. Right. <laughs> and it... You know, literally Shakespeare becomes everything. And it's this group of students. You have the weird obsession, friendships and um, sexual relationships and things going on. And then someone mysteriously died. And the whole thing is kind of a whodunit slash why done it, but also dark academia and why people could get so insular and why they would act in the ways they do. And I actually didn't see the reveal coming in this one until about halfway through. Okay. Which is, you know, quite something for me. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, highly recommend it. Also, if you love Shakespeare, there's so many great Shakespeare quotes and the way it parallels the text is amazing. 
Okay, I'm definitely going to have to check that out. <laughs> it's a great audiobook too. <laughs> um, a Deadly Education by Naomi Novak. Um, obviously, I've loved her, some of her other books and I've yeah. been meaning to read this one for ages and I've literally just finished it. Stopped yesterday. And Okay, it's been on my list for ages as well. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, no spoilers, but this is Dark Academia, um, but they're all in the Scholomance. So if you're aware of sort of Romanian type legend, the Scholomance or Solomantia, which is the place where <laughs> allegedly the, the, the so-called wizards lived, <laughs> Mm-hmm. where they would take 13 pupils every year. 12 would be released eventually after seven years, and one of them would have to stay in order to serve. Um, the 13th belonged to the devil kind of thing. It's mentioned in yeah. Dracula. It's mentioned in various other texts and things. I don't think they've ever found it. Obviously, I borrowed it for a recent Harker Blackthorn book, one that's forthcoming. Yes. Um, and it's just... I love the main character. The main character is half Indian, half Welsh. Right. And... She is incredibly rude to everyone. Her internal monologue is very snarky, which I like. And I just love the way she goes about calculatedly doing what she does in this the Scholomance. Because the Scholomance doesn't have lecturers. But your your chances of surviving as a wizard child outside the Scholomance are like 1 in 20. If you manage to make it through the Scholomance, so a school education for, for mm-hmm. wizards or mages your chances of surviving that are one in four so basically it's a case of yeah i might still die but i've got much better chances if i actually go through the school <laughs> um so that's kind of why you're there but the school is full of monsters and things that try to eat you that's fun <laughs> And it's also not a case of if you have magic or access to mana, then you are automatically good. Um, mm. There's also access to malia, whereby you're literally stealing life force from somebody else. And you can go down that route, but there's a hefty pr- price to pay for it. <laughs> Always is, isn't there? <laughs> really is. And it's just, an, it's a really good book. Um, it's part of a trilogy, and I haven't got to the second book yet, obviously, because I've only just finished this one. Um, I've seen some criticisms levelled at Naomi Novak for this, and I think, personally, they're unjustified. I think the person who, or people who levelled these criticisms were, for some reason, they picked her as somebody somebody who was a sufficiently big enough name that they wanted to um, make a name for themselves by bringing her down, as it were. Mm, okay. amongst the book reviewing community so I would take it with a pinch of salt and go in and decide for yourself kind of thing okay alright I haven't seen the um, the criticisms and obviously I haven't read the book so I will reserve any kind of judgement um, I'd be very interested to see kind of what it's all about definitely um, The Betrayals by Bridget Collins this is a uh, again this is <laughs> more of an adult but also again in a kind of college school type setting where it's a very exclusive place in France yeah. and every year you have the Grand Jeu and whoever wins the Grand Jeu you know, gets all the accolades etc It's if you think about it it's a very exclusive thing to, to get to be able to get to that place where you're not actually necessarily learning something practical but you're basically being sort of applauded for this huge academic achievement and it's sort of 
part maths, part magic, part music. Yeah. Um, again, go in not knowing too much because I don't want to spoil it for anyone for that. Okay. But this is something literally like, I'm going to add that to my TV read, <laughs> to my TV read list. Yeah, if you want a shorter TBR, I am not the person to talk to. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I'm going to skip over A Great and Terrible Beauty because it's an example, that trilogy, but it's not Liverbray's best work and I would I only kind of rated it sort of like a three out of five. So it's fine, but it's not it's not amazing. It's girls' boarding school. Um, Gemma, the main character, starts off being sort of Irish, English, but from a good family and she starts off in India and gets moved to this English boarding school. And turns out that there's a gate to fairy within the school and she has the talent to open it kind of thing. And again, nice. there are, it's okay, but I, it's not like a massive recommendation from me. I've mentioned Vita Nostra. Um, I think I've recommended The Queen's Gambit, the, the film, the series on Netflix, which is really, really good. And yeah. the only caution I would say is that the problem with The Queen's Gambit, yes, you've got the 60s aesthetic, there's the cold war in the background there's this incredible intelligence etc it's got dark academia feels but it's not really a dark academia setting yeah the problem is that the main character it's framed within the this sort of like oh wow a woman's done it that's my the only drawback on that one for me yeah it's like women have brains too <laughs> <laughs> uh there's the mona lisa smile as well yeah, again, I enjoyed the film, but part of the problem is the same as The Queen's Gambit, instead of having an individualistic storyline. Um, and it, it, I don't know, it's a kind of a good feel, it's a feel-good film in some ways. But it's, yeah. the, the characters are defined by being women who are extremely intelligent, rather than getting their own little arcs, as it were. Yeah, absolutely. Um and obviously the Dead Poet Society, which... <laughs> yeah, again, I haven't seen that since I was a teenager, so I don't want to comment too much on it, but it is, again, one of the, the quintessential dark academia things to watch. Yeah, um, and it is. Uh, it's it's a heavy hitter, that's for sure. Yeah. It's very beautiful as well. Um, it's also, again, it's quite interesting because um, it kind of gives this sort of insight into uh, kind of private school but sort of very particularly the kind of the mental strain of private school which is very important to know yeah because most of the people who run the country have been in settings like this and it kind of explains a lot <laughs> it really explains a huge amount so um i guess we should finish off uh, by asking would we ever write dark academia um, I would probably, but it's almost one of those things where I enjoy coming across it so much that I almost want to have something that I don't feel that I have to do anything with. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So I love it. And I, I've got so many other things to write. I'm kind of like, it would be on the back burner for me. <laughs> yeah. And I feel like with Dark Academia, both of us have drawn on elements of it. Yeah, definitely. But I... I don't think either of us have, have written it yet. Not yet. <laughs> Not yet. There's still time. <laughs> um, there's still time. There's plenty of time. Um, but definitely, I think both of us have drawn on it. Um, and I think that that's inevitable, considering how 
invested we both are in things like the gothic and things like i say invested you know the romanticism shakespeare you know those kinds of things um we're both very interested in these kinds of areas so it's inevitable that there's going to be some crossover i think yes definitely and on that note we are going to wrap things up for this episode um again have we missed anything out do you agree or disagree with what we've said we would love to hear from you remember you can get in contact with us via our facebook our twitter or our tumblr both individually or through the dissecting dragons pages now uh, before we go it is time for our dissecting dragons recommendation of the week and jules i believe that you've got one for us i have it's quite an old film now in terms of the fact well it has to be relatively old because it stars alan rickman it's called cbgb and I can't <laughs> tell you what that stands for, but you know anybody who's really into the punk scene will apparently immediately recognise that. <laughs> um, it's a great film. It is really, really good. It kind of looks at the birth of what we came to understand as modern, the modern punk movement. So yeah. it looks at a guy who has failed and gone bankrupt twice trying to open a jazz club. <laughs> Or a jazz and blues club. A ju- and country, I think. Country was his big focus. And it just wasn't selling. Um, yeah. He makes a third attempt and gets this real little dive. It's a real shithole. Reminded me of a club I used to go to a lot at 15. And <laughs> so, so there was big nostalgia feels. And it turns into one of those things where, because he's, like, providing a platform for um, new bands who are untried to just play to an audience and he actually goes out and rounds up a few people including the local copper he's like come in and play come in and listen come in and listen no come and listen i'll stand you a free drink his business models are appalling um and it just absolutely takes off it suddenly becomes the place uh mm. so it yeah it, it it's just a really amazing film it's how how did this music scene manage to make it through because before that there was no space for it and so yeah. you have things people like um adam and the ants and blondie and a lot of the ones who were sort of quite big by the time i arrived on the scene it's their early start and it's just an amazingly feel-good film but also some real oh my god moments as well so is it like based on a true story then? yeah 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 it's based on uh hilly crystal hilly crystal's the name of the guy he's he's dead now but he gave so many musicians their initial start in the business um and not through managing them but just through this this dive bar giving them somewhere to play and he you know he did actually make a huge success out of it in the end so Okay, that's really interesting. I will definitely have to check that out. Thank you very much for that recommendation. And on that note, guys, we're going to say thanks very much for listening, and we'll catch you guys next week. Yeah, thanks and goodbye. Bye. You've been listening to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast. You can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from iTunes. For more information, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissectingreaders or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com. Please note that no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast.